What I want you to see this morning is scripture is full of scenarios where God works in spite of man and woman's mistake. And that's what we'll see in the text before us this morning. Y'all ready? All right. Well, so far, this is what we've seen. Um, God tells Abraham, Abraham, you've come from this obscure family, this, this family that does not follow God, this pagan family. And he tells him he's going to draw him out and tell him to come into the land of the unknown. He's going to say, follow me. I'm going to take you to a place that you've never seen. Where are we going? You'll find out later. Uh, I'm going to take, and then he tells Abraham, look, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And Abraham says, there's going to be one problem with that. My wife's barren. She's unable to have children. Don't worry. We'll figure it out. Just follow me. And so Abraham, by faith, follows God through this. And now, even though he's trying to follow God through this and obey this promise, he still looks through this uh, situation through human eyes. And he begins to take matters in his own hands. We see this earlier in the series. Instead of believing that God was going to provide a child that God promised him and his wife Sarah, uh, instead of believing that him and his wife Sarah would have a child, he brings in a slave uh, servant woman named Hagar, and he impregnates her, and then she gives birth to a child named Ishmael. Nonetheless, we see God work in spite of all of Abraham's doubts. He promises that he and his wife, Sarah, would have their own child, and he guarantees this is going to happen, and he says, name that child. When it happens, Isaac. Now, if you remember, as you're seeing this promise unfold, reading Genesis, if you've been reading through Genesis to this series, hopefully you have, um, chapters 18 and 19, we skipped. But there in chapters 18 and 19, Abraham is dealing with his nephew, Lot, and he's trying to get... Uh, his nephew Lot, out of a heinous situation where his life was in danger. And so we have these heroic moments where Abraham displays incredible faith, and then we'll see him fail miserably. But what happens throughout all of this story is that God has been consistently faithful to his promises. But what we're going to see this morning is Abraham goes back into some bad Habits, But the good news is God is merciful and keeps his end of the bargain. He keeps his word. So we'll see that in Genesis chapter 20. I'll start in verse 1. We'll have the words up on the screen so you can follow along. But if you have your Bible, follow along with me. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Negev and lived between places that I won't even read. And he sojourned in Greer. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my Sister, And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the series, you've seen this happen before. We saw it happen, in fact, in Genesis 12. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are going to another strange and foreign land. They run into Pharaoh, and Abraham's afraid of Pharaoh. And so what does he tell uh, his wife. He says, when, when Pharaoh sees you, he's going to see, see that you're a knockout, which is kind of a compliment. Here she is in her later 70s. This guy is going to want to like, hook up with you. Just tell him you are the sister, not my wife. Don't, don't let, put me in danger. And so she does. She says, okay, I'm the sister. And then what happens? Pharaoh takes her into his house and has his way with her. And then Pharaoh corrects Abraham and says, why didn't you tell me? Because God then speaks to Pharaoh and says, what are you doing messing with 
uh, Abraham's wife, and then he says, well, I didn't know this was wife. He said it was a sister. And so God then communicates to Pharaoh and says, you better get this woman out of your house. And then Pharaoh goes to Abraham and says, why did this happen? Why didn't you tell me this was your wife? And now that happened in Genesis 12, 13. And now 20 years later, in Genesis 20, he does the exact same thing. He has not learned his lesson. He would have benefited greatly from our Genesis series. And we talked about how a husband treats a wife, right? He's supposed to be the protector. He's supposed to be the provider. He's not supposed to fear man. He's supposed to fear God. But as we read this series, we should, we, this, this really text, we should see this sobering truth that we should never think that we're above certain sins. Abraham committed this same sin 20 years before, and here he is again struggling with the same sin. And this can happen to all of us. We should never think for one moment, I've completely conquered this particular sin, and I will never struggle with this again. Of course, we see repentance in our life. Of course, we should see repentance in life. Every person we baptize this morning, we, we want them to have evidence of repentant lives. That's what it means to be, become a believer. You used to love sin. Now you hate sin. However, we should never put our guard down when it comes to sin. We should never think we're above any sin. Yet, the good news is that, again, we have a merciful God who works in spite of our constant failures. And that's what begins to unfold next. Genesis 20, verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother, in the integrity, good word, not the reason why we named the church based on this text, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hand, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I, it was I, Who kept you from sinning against me? Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return, know you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now, a couple of things that I want you to see here. First of all, God does not allow anything to get in the way of what he promises. He won't even allow this man to touch Sarah. Sarah, again, remember, she's supposed to give birth to this child, Isaac, through her and Abraham. And now you have a man getting in the way and potentially wrecking the whole thing. And this is the way, by the way, he also loves Sarah. He's showing a love that a father would have for a daughter. This protection, this care. He's saying, this is my daughter. Yes, she's 90 years old, but she's my daughter. She's mine. You don't touch her. If you do, 
you're a dead man. And that is why God would not allow me to have a daughter. (laughs) Same reason. But yes, he loves his daughter. But something else is happening. He's preserving his word. If Abimelech were to have his way with her, and the possibility or even the rumor of her getting pregnant by another man would distort the promise that she and Abraham would have Isaac together. So that's that's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to see in this, notice the sovereign God at work in this narrative. Though Abimelech really didn't know she was married, God still reminds her why he didn't touch her. He says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. In other words, God is saying, you didn't touch her because I wouldn't let you touch her. And this is good for us, and it's good for Abimelech to see as well. If there was ever a, a moment in Abimelech's pagan heart to think any righteous thought in this moment, okay, well, I had this integrity in my heart that I didn't sleep with this woman. No, no, no. God is saying, you didn't because I stopped you. Otherwise, you would have. And Abimelech reminds us that without the grace of God, we are nothing. And I want you all to see that this morning. It's important that we see that because in us, without Christ, we still find ourselves boasting in our own righteousness. I remember one moment where I had, I began to boast in my own righteousness when I was talking about the way I used to live before I was a believer. Um, I was taking summer classes in college, and I had this roommate, this dear friend of mine named Dave. Dave's a church planner in uh, Chicago, and uh, he and I were roommates together, and Dave had this crazy lifestyle. Like, before he became a believer, he was like a drug addict and a drug dealer, and like got became a believer in, like, rehab. That's like a really radical person. And I remember he had, like, this big dragon tattoo on one arm. The other arm was, like, the, the Confederate flag with marijuana leaves all around the side. And so, like, every time we went to the pool, I'm like, bro, please wear your shirt. Like, wear the long sleeves. Like, do it. And so, like, we... This was Dave um, before Christ, and Dave became a believer and, like, really just became, like, a, a, just loved the gospel, loved sharing the gospel wherever he went. Dave and I had this, these summer classes, and we would cram all of these classes in as much as we, like, all the classes we could take in the, in the summer, we would just to have, to, to graduate on time. And so here we were trying to do this, and we had um, this morning class, and right after we got out, we would have this break, like this two-hour break before our next classes. And so we had this ritual that we do where we would literally take these frozen chicken patties and put them in the oven and, like, put cheese on top and mayonnaise. It's like the grossest thing ever, and I would never do that today, but that is what we did every day, and we watched Zoolander every single day. We'd watch Zoolander eat chicken patties. And so this one day, we decided, okay, we've watched Zoolander. We have the whole movie memorized. Let's watch something else. And so we began to watch the History Channel. And as we're watching the History Channel, it showed up about World War II, and it started talking about Hitler and some of the ways that he would interrogate people, some of the ways that he would torture people. And I began to think, man, what an awful person. Like, oh, what a terrible person. And remember Dave came out of this crazy background before he's a believer, and he looked at me. He's from High Point, North Carolina. He says, it's only by the grace of God that you wouldn't be the same way. And I'm like, what? No, man. But, but before I was a believer, I didn't act that way. I didn't kill people. And he goes, by the grace of God, you didn't kill people. And I'm like, okay. But I, I came like, I had some 
convictions. He says, who gave you those convictions? I'm like, God, you know, God gave me the convictions. Like, um, I had like a moral compass. Who gave you that moral compass? You know? And at the end of the conversation, I'm like, okay, you got me. I'm Hitler. You win. All right? You win. And that's the reality. That, that, that's the reality is without the gospel or without Christ and his goodness, even before I became a Christian, any righteous act that I would have ever done, any time I would have, wouldn't do what my own sin wanted me to do, which is to sin, it was all by the grace of God. This is Abimelech. This is us. God would not allow Abimelech to touch this woman, but that was because God would not allow him to, not because he didn't want to. He clearly wanted to. He took her into his home. It didn't matter who she was. If there was any morality in Abimelech, it was because God made him have morals morals in that moment. And so God is reminding him, look, I am sovereign over this whole thing. You are not in control. You're not going to come in here and brag about your integrity and what you've done right And this is so true of the condition of our heart. God is preserving once again and protecting his promise that Isaac would be born of Abraham and Sarah. And what he's sovereignly showing us is that nothing is going to get in the way. And then we'll pick up in verse 8. That's good news, right? So Abimelech... Verse 8, rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. They did not want that to happen to them either, right? Then Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done uh, to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did these things? And Abraham says, I did it. Notice what Abraham says. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. And here's a really sad scenario. Abimelech, the pagan king, is right. And Abraham, the man of God, is wrong. And Abimelech has the audacity to tell Abraham why he's wrong. He's telling Abraham, you don't have enough faith. And Pharaoh did the exact same thing to Abraham. This is the second time a pagan king has called him out in his passivity and his doubt. Why didn't you tell me that that was your wife? Why did you tell me that was my sister? And we learn a lot from Abraham here in this text because we, in order, what happens here is these pagan kings, Abraham has this opportunity to show this remarkable faith. And what he does is he backs down and he allows these men to call him out in the faith that he should have. And the problem with Abraham is he's not believing and what God is doing in his life. And so what we learn from him in this text is we must believe in what God is doing in our lives and start looking at ourselves as God looks at us. 
Abraham is still relying on his own ability and not trusting that God will do what he says he will do. If Abraham wholeheartedly believed that God would do what he says, he would have not feared Abimelech the way that he did. If he would have trusted the sureness of this promise, he would have been motivated to stand firm, even against the most powerful leader in that region. And this is our problem. When we fail and we fall into the same sins over and over and over again, what that displays is unbelief. We don't want to believe what God is, what God is doing in our lives. We, we don't want to see ourselves as God sees us. Imagine Abraham's response if he solely believed in this promise that you are going to be the father of many nations. You are going to be the patriarch of of an entire people. He would have no fear of this king. If he would go back on on the promise that God told him in Genesis 12 that no enemy will stand before you. I will crush your enemies. I will punish your enemies. I will curse your enemies. He would have no fear of this king. This is us as much as it is Abimelech. God looks at us as believers in Christ, and he says, Believer, I've saved you. I've chosen you before the foundation of the world. I've sent my son to die for you. And now I've put my Holy Spirit in you, those who believe. And now you are going to make much of my name to the ends of the earth. And like I have promised Abraham land, I've promised every believer riches and inheritance more than this world has to offer, and even more than that, you get to be with Jesus for eternity. Nothing, everything in this world pales in comparison. Imagine if we lived believing that and living that out every day in our life and every fear that we face, we apply to that truth. If we never doubted that truth, we would see the challenges of this world as almost trivial. But every time we sin, We are refusing to apply the promises of God to our lives. And we do what Abraham has done and Sarah has done throughout this story. We begin to take matters in our own hands, and we believe that we're in control and that God is not. Now, I want us to stop for a moment and think about Abraham's life, where he started and where he is now. Where he started was an old man, an old couple, that could not have a child. In a pagan family that was dying off, there was no one left in God's people that loved the Lord. There was no families left that loved the Lord. Abraham would have been the last one of a family that loved the Lord, and God calls him out. He says, I want you to leave your family behind, and I want you to follow me. If Abraham never trusted God, even in those first steps, he would have never seen the challenge and the reward of faith. He would have never stood before the most powerful leaders of the day and been faced with these challenges. He would have never seen the reward of of God allowing him to have moments of incredible victory when he went and rescued his nephew Lot. He would have never seen these things happen. But what does God do? He calls him when he's retired, when he's 70. And he's saying, I'm not through with you yet. I've got something more for you. And now that he comes off the bench and begins to play in the game, God is showing him that he's more than he ever would have been by following Christ, by following God. And so God, Abraham shows us that God is never through with us. It doesn't matter how impossible 
the situation or how difficult your life has been. It doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter how many sins that you've committed. God can make you into a new person. And I got to tell you, every time we do a baptism um, service at our church, um, I get just emotional watching these people and hearing their stories and what God has done in their lives. And and I was just struck um, just thinking about it this week, meditating on this text. And I was thinking about um, my, my buddy, Matt Stump, who's here this morning. He was playing uh, bass in the band, and Matt's one of our small group leaders as well. And uh, I remember the first time Matt Stump came to Integrity Church. He came during a baptism Sunday. And um, he and I met right after, right outside of the pool. And like, he told me I gave him an intense look, but I just have a really bad squint when I'm outside. So apparently I was looking at him like this. He's like, like you were looking through my soul. I'm like, cool, I was, I'm intimidating. That's awesome. Um, and so like we, he and I met, and I began to, he said, man, I want to hear more about, you know, who Jesus is and the gospel. And so he and I met, and he began to tell me his life. And this is years ago. He began to tell me his life, and he was addicted to drugs, and he was addicted to alcohol, and he was a slave to those things. And a year before he came to Integrity Church, he was just, his goal was to work, get off work, and get high. And that was his life. And then slowly, as he came here, he heard the gospel and became a believer in Christ. Then then I began to see him move into discipleship. He said, man, I want to learn more about the Bible. And so we set him up with this another guy who was walking through Scripture with him and began to grow and help him answer hard questions. Matt's a pretty analytical guy, so he's got a lot of hard questions. And so they began to work through these things. And then you begin to see Matt's faith grow, his love for Christ grow. And then as over time I've been getting, seeing him just as a member of our church, now he's one, one of our small group leaders. And I've seen him mature into just a really tender-hearted person who just genuinely cares and serves people so well. And not only that, but he doesn't back down from the truth either. He's very solid in the truth. And now I've seen him go overseas on missions trips and share the gospel with people that, are, that never heard Christ. And I've even seen him in Greenville build relationships with foreigners that live here that come from different backgrounds and different languages. And he learns about their culture and shares the gospel with them. And you look at him now, and if, you've, if you're newer to integrity and you know who Matt is, and you hear what he used to be like, you can't believe it. It's like, you used to do what? I mean, when he first told me, I was like, where's my wallet? Like, I want to be careful around this guy. Like, now, like, I would trust him with so many things because I see who he used to be and I see who he is now. And it doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that God would call Abraham out. So you're going to be the patriarch. You're going to be the father of many nations. And most people would look at a person like Matt before he was a believer in Christ and says, there's no chance, there's no hope, but that's not the God of the Bible. God makes us into people that we can't imagine that we would become. And all of that comes from us having faith and taking God at his word. Now, there's a lot here. So I'm just going to show you just a quick snapshot of chapter 21, when everything that Abraham and his wife Sarah has been waiting for actually comes true. All the years, 20 years of waiting, 20 years of trusting the promises of God, what God promises happens. Chapter 21, starting verse 1. The Lord said to Sarah, as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived 
and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At at the time in which God has spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. And this is where I read this and I'm laughing, really. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I love this response, y'all. I want you to see the irony that happens. Sarah sees this take place right before her eyes, and her response is to laugh. The first time that God spoke to Sarah and told her that you're going to have a son and you're going to name it Isaac, she is an old woman who's been barren her whole life. She laughed. She, she laughed out of skepticism and unbelief. She laughed because her whole life in that culture, she would have thought that uh, in that culture, you believed that if you were barren, you were cursed by God. Something was wrong with you. You're, God is angry with you. That was what people believed, that they were barren. And here she is. She would laugh because she didn't believe it. She was skeptical. But now she laughs differently. In Genesis 21, she laughs in awe. I can't believe this actually has happened. And then we as a church, as we see these things, we see baptisms, we see testimonies before us. There's got to be a point of all in our lives. I can't believe this actually has happened. I can't believe the way that this person used to be and the way that they are now because of the gospel making a transformation in their life. This is happening right in front of us. It should give us all and it should make us kind of laugh. Like, okay, guys like Matt Stump and Ben Tugwell shouldn't be teaching the Bible. Who are these guys? We should laugh at that. Ben Tugwell failed two grades before high school. Ben Tugwell was driving in eighth grade. I had my license in eighth grade. I could legally vote and smoke in tenth grade. It has some advantages, all right? But I shouldn't be up here. People back home, when they see me from Rocky Mountain, they go, are you still a pastor? Like, they can't believe that. You can't believe that, right? What is that? It's called the grace of God. I'm not supposed to be up here. So I'll just laugh and I'll praise him. On paper, Abraham and Sarah weren't supposed to have a child, and Abraham wasn't supposed to be the patriarch of Israel, but that's what God wanted him to be. That's what God wanted him to be. God wants you to be someone who's made new, and it's someone that you cannot imagine yourself to be. Only God can do it. Only God can make you new. Now, there's a lot here that happens in the text, and I encourage you to go back and read verses 8 through 21, but I'm going to show you, I'm I'm trying to show you this text through the lenses of 
Abimelech looking into Abraham's life. And so let me show you the time that Abimelech comes back on the scene. Uh, you think Isaac grows up and he, he gets older. Uh, Hagar and um, Ishmael are dealt with. You're going to see that in verses 8 through 21. But let me show you 22 when Abimelech comes on the scene. Now, Abimelech's had time to see Abraham's life and see faith demonstrated in his life from this point um, forward, from the birth of his son forward. But I want you to see how Abimelech sees him. Verse 22. In that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. See that? Pagan king Abimelech looks at Abraham and says, Hey, I want you to know when I look at you, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, you shall deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Here's what I want you to see in this. Trusting God is worth it. Even a pagan king like Abimelech sees the favor of God in Abraham. Abraham faced Abimelech earlier, and Abimelech did not respect Abraham when Abraham looked at Abimelech and feared him. Abimelech did not respect Abraham at all when Abraham lied to him and said, this is not my wife, this is my sister. He did not respect him at all. When did he respect Abraham? He respected Abraham when Abraham believed and walked in the promises of God. He, when he walked in the promises of God, that's when Abimelech looked at Abraham and says, everything that you do, God is with you. God is with you in all that we do. Integrity Church, this is a truth that we have to remember when we're faced and we're sometimes crippled with fear, when we're afraid to live out our identity with Christ, and instead of, believing and standing firm in the gospel, we begin to live out how we think others will accept us and others will approve of us. But when we do this, how will the world see anything different? This is why Peter says to the church that's scattered in 1 Peter chapter 2, the church that's being persecuted, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the non-believers. Keep your conduct among the non-believers honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's what I want you to see in that. The way that God has chosen to display his glory throughout the world is the faith of believers in walking and living out the promises of God. Non-believers look at that and they marvel because they can't believe that we cherish this truth of the gospel the way that we do. And and, and what Abimelech sees in Abraham, I can't believe you really trusted that you're going to be the father of many nations and you're going to have a child and your wife's going to have a child and y'all are going to have this family and you're old and I can't believe this is going to happen at 100 years old. But when it happened, he says, man, God is clearly on your side. God is clearly blessing everything that you do. And so friends, when we see this integrity church and we live out the gospel, the world is looking at us and they're saying, okay, are you going to really believe this truth? Are you going to really live this truth out? Think about how crazy 
the story of the gospel is. Think about how crazy the Christmas story is. It's bizarre. I mean, okay, let's just put it in like modern terms. I want you to see this because I want you to see the faith that's required for you to believe in this truth. Modern terms, it sounds like this. There's a poor girl from J.H. Rose High School who was engaged to her high school sweetheart, and she tells everyone that she's been getting visions from angels. And these visions are telling her, a high school girl, J.H. Rose, that she would give birth to the king of the world and would inevitably be the most important person in all of history. And then she gets pregnant, and everyone's asking her how she got pregnant. She says, but I'm still a virgin. You're going to go, uh-uh. That's not how the world works, right? But her and her boyfriend, they leave town. They drive down the road so that the baby would be born. We'll say Bethel, North Carolina. <laughs> good, you're paying attention. That's good. And there's no place for them to stay. They try to go to a hotel. Hotels are full, so they go to the motel, right? And try to find a Motel 6 for the baby to be born. And so the Motel 6 is full. And so they go in the alleyway in Bethel, North Carolina. And this high school poor girl gives birth to the king of the world. And they say, well, where are we going to raise this child? We'll raise him in another obscure town, Tarboro, North Carolina. We'll raise him in Tarboro. And he lives with his mom and his dad. And he takes on his father's trade, who's also a poor man. And he takes on his father's trade, and he finally moves out at age 30. And then he lives for three years, and he performs miracles, and he gathers a following, and he ends up dying for all the people that he loves. And then he dies, and no one believes, okay, well, what that happened, that was just three years, and he dies, and he comes back from the grave. And then you hear these stories, and then generations pass, and generations pass, decades pass, and um, we see grandfathers telling us the story about how their grandson saw this person that had happened, and it happened in these obscure places, in an obscure way, and you still believe it. Why would you believe it? It's faith that makes you believe it, but not only faith, but it's the stories of people walking in faith that affirms that belief. It's not just, okay, I believe in Christ. I believe what he's done. I believe in it. I I trust in it. But you also look around you and you say, okay, that person also who believes in it is different than the way they used to be because they believe in it. So you begin to see the effects of it, and then you begin to see it last for centuries, and you begin to see it affect cultures. Our entire culture is shaped by this one idea that God sent his son, Jesus, to live in the world. And we sing Christmas carols based on this person's name. There's no name more popular. There's no name that more books have been written and more songs that have been sung. It's the name above all names, the name that God declared above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. And that is what God did. And all of it to believe in it requires faith. And so this morning, as we think about these truths, 
There's two things I want you to see. One is theological, and one is abundantly practical. Theologically, we see this, that God is going to work out his promises in spite of us. He's going to do what he says he's going to do, and he's proven that over and over again. We can't get in the way of it. We can't prevent it. We can't hinder it. And theologically, this means he's sovereign in control of all things. And he plans everything out according to his purposes. And this text is riddled with that truth. It's riddled when Abraham and Sarah try to take matters in their own hands, but God works in spite of them. It's riddled when Abimelech tries to take matters in his own hands, and God uh, works in spite of him. It's a theological truth. God is sovereign over all, and he does what he wills. The practical implications of this is, even though God is working out his promises no matter what, we're still called to walk in them. And when we do, we realize the favor that we have from God. And furthermore, we see favor with others. When people see our lives, they see faith. And they're drawn to that faith, and they're drawn to that truth. And so, friends, we have nothing to be ashamed of in living out the gospel and having faith in the promises of God. And so it's my hope that if we approach this season, this holiday season, this Christmas season, we're going to be around friends and we're going to be around family. And when people ask me, what do you do? You know what I want to do for Christmas? I want to celebrate what Christ has done in my life because that is really what matters. And friends, this is what I want us to do. I want us to see that what we see throughout Scripture, when people walk, walk in the promises of God, we see that it's worth it. Will we do that this morning? God help us. Let us pray.